Book four, chapters one through eighteen of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Four, Chapter One. Having begun to speak of the city of God, I have thought it necessary first of all to reply to its enemies, who, eagerly pursuing earthly joys and gaping after transitory things, throw the blame of all the sorrow they suffer in them, rather through the compassion of God in admonishing than his severity in punishing, on the Christian religion, which is the one salutary and true religion. And since there is among them also an unlearned rabble, they are stirred up as by the authority of the learned to hate us more bitterly thinking in their inexperience that things which have happened unwontedly in their days were not wont to happen in other times gone by. And whereas this opinion of theirs is confirmed even by those who know that it is false, and yet dissemble their knowledge in order that they may seem to have just cause for murmuring against us, it was necessary, from books in which their authors recorded and published the history of bygone times, that it might be known, to demonstrate that it is far otherwise than they think and at the same time to teach that the false gods whom they openly worshipped, or still worship in secret, are most unclean spirits, and most malignant and deceitful demons, even to such a pitch that they take delight in crimes, which, whether real or only fictitious, are yet their own, which it has been their will to have celebrated in honour of them at their own festivals, so that human infirmity cannot be called back from the perpetration of damnable deeds, so long as authority is furnished for imitating them, that seem even divine. These things we have proved not from our own conjectures, but partly from recent memory, because we ourselves have seen such things celebrated, and to such deities, partly from the writings of those who have left these things on record to posterity, not as if in reproach, but as an honour of their own gods. Thus Varro, a most learned man among them, and of the weightiest authority, when he made separate books concerning things human and things divine, distributing some among the human, others among the divine, according to the special dignity of each, placed the scenic plays not at all among things human, but among things divine. Though certainly, if only there were good and honest men in the state, the scenic plays ought not to be allowed even among things human." And this he did not on his own authority, but because, being born and educated at Rome, he found them among the divine things. Now as we briefly stated in the end of the first book what we intended afterwards to discuss, and as we have disposed of a part of this in the next two books, we see what our readers will expect us now to take up. CHAPTER Two. We had promised, then, that we would say something against those who attribute the calamities of the Roman Republic to our religion, and that we would recount the evils, as many and great as we could remember or might deem sufficient, which that city, or the provinces belonging to its empire, had suffered before their sacrifices were prohibited, all of which would beyond doubt have been attributed to us, if our religion had either already shone on them, or had thus prohibited their sacrilegious rites. These things we have, as we think, fully disposed of in the second and third books, treating in the second of evils and morals, which alone or chiefly are to be accounted evils, and in the third of those which only fools dread to undergo, namely those of the body or of outward things, which for the most part the good also suffer. But those evils by which they themselves become evil, they take, I do not say patiently, but with pleasure. 
and how few evils have I related concerning that one city and its empire, not even all down to the time of Caesar Augustus? What if I had chosen to recount and enlarge on those evils, not which men have inflicted on each other, such as the devastations and destructions of war, but which happen in earthly things from the elements of the world itself? Of such evils Apuleius speaks briefly in one passage of that book which he wrote, De Mundo, saying that all earthly things are subject to change, overthrow, and destruction. For, to use his own words, by excessive earthquakes the ground has burst asunder, and cities with their inhabitants have been clean destroyed. By sudden rains whole regions have been washed away. Those also which formerly had been continents have been insulated by strange and new-come waves, and others by the subsiding of the sea have been made passable by the foot of man. By winds and storms cities have been overthrown, fires have flashed forth from the clouds by which regions in the east being burnt up have perished, and on the western coasts the like destructions have been caused by the bursting forth of waters and floods. So formerly from the lofty craters of Etna rivers of fire kindled by God have flowed like a torrent down the steeps. If I had wished to collect from history wherever I could these and similar instances, where should I have finished what happened even in those times before the name of Christ had put down those of their idols, so vain and hurtful to true salvation? I promised that I should also point out which of their customs, and for what cause the true God, in whose power all kingdoms are, had deigned to favor to the enlargement of their empire, and how those whom they think gods can have profited them nothing, but much rather hurt them by deceiving and beguiling them so that it seems to me I must now speak of these things, and chiefly of the increase of the Roman Empire. For I have already said not a little, especially in the second book, about the many evils introduced into their manners by the hurtful deceits of the demons whom they worshipped as gods. But throughout all the three books already completed, where it appeared suitable, we have set forth how much succor God, through the name of Christ, to whom the barbarians, beyond the custom of war, paid so much honor, has bestowed on the good and bad, according as it is written, Who maketh his son to rise on the good and the evil, and giveth rain to the just and the unjust. CHAPTER three. Now, therefore, let us see how it is that they dare to ascribe the very great extent and duration of the Roman Empire to those gods whom they contend that they worship honorably, even by the obsequies of vile games and the ministry of vile men. Although I should like first to inquire for a little what reason, what prudence there is, in wishing to glory in the greatness and extent of the empire, when you cannot point out the happiness of men who are always rolling, with dark fear and cruel lust, in warlike slaughters and in blood which, whether shed in civil or foreign war, is still human blood, so that their joy may be compared to glass in its fragile splendor, of which one is horribly afraid lest it should be suddenly broken in pieces. That this may be more easily discerned, let us not come to naught by being carried away with empty boasting, or blunt the edge of our attention by loud-sounding names of things, when we hear of peoples, kingdoms, provinces. But let us suppose a case of two men, for each individual man, like one letter in a language, is, as it were, the element of a city or kingdom, however far-spreading in its occupation of the earth. Of these two men, let us suppose that one is poor, or rather of middling circumstances, the other is very rich. But the rich man is anxious with fears, pining with discontent, burning with covetousness, never secure, always uneasy, panting from the perpetual strife of his enemies, adding to his patrimony indeed by these miseries to an immense degree, and by these additions also heaping up most bitter cares. 
but that other man of moderate wealth is contented with a small and compact estate, most dear to his own family, enjoying the sweetest peace with his kindred neighbors and friends, in piety religious, benignant in mind, healthy in body, in life frugal, in manners chaste, in conscience secure. I know not whether any one can be such a fool that he dare hesitate which to prefer. As, therefore, in the case of these two men, so in two families, in two nations, in two kingdoms, this test of tranquillity holds good, and if we apply it vigilantly and without prejudice, we shall quite easily see where the mere show of happiness dwells, and where real felicity. Wherefore, if the true God is worshipped, and if he is served with genuine rites and true virtue, it is advantageous that good men should long reign both far and wide. Nor is this advantageous so much to themselves as to those over whom they reign. For, so far as concerns themselves, their piety and probity, which are great gifts of God, suffice to give them true felicity, enabling them to live well the life that now is, and afterwards, to receive that which is eternal. In this world, therefore, the dominion of good men is profitable, not so much for themselves as for human affairs. But the dominion of bad men is hurtful chiefly to themselves who rule, for they destroy their own souls by greater license and wickedness while those who are put under them in service are not hurt except by their own iniquity. For to the just all the evils imposed on them by unjust rulers are not the punishment of crime, but the test of virtue. Therefore the good man, although he is a slave, is free, but the bad man, even if he reigns, is a slave, and that not of one man, but, what is far more grievous, of as many masters as he has vices, of which vices, when the divine scripture treats, it says, for of whom any man is overcome, to the same he is also the bond-slave. CHAPTER four. Justice being taken away, then, what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? The band itself is made up of men. It is ruled by the authority of a prince, it is knit together by the pact of the confederacy. The booty is divided by the law agreed on. If by the admittance of abandoned men this evil increases to such a degree that it holds places, fixes abodes, takes possession of cities, and subdues peoples, it assumes the more plainly the name of a kingdom, because the reality is now manifestly conferred on it, not by the removal of covetousness, but by the addition of impunity. Indeed, that was an apt and true reply which was given to Alexander the Great by a pirate who had been seized. For when that king had asked the man what he meant by keeping a hostile possession of the sea, he answered with bold pride, What thou meanest by seizing the whole earth? But because I do it with a petty ship, I am called a robber, whilst thou who dost it with a great fleet art styled emperor. CHAPTER five. I shall not therefore stay to inquire what sort of men Romulus gathered together, seeing he deliberated much about them how, being assumed out of that life they led into the fellowship of his city, they might cease to think of the punishment they deserved, the fear of which had driven them to greater villainies, so that henceforth they might be made more peaceable members of society. But this I say, that the Roman Empire, which by subduing many nations had already grown great and an object of universal dread, was itself greatly alarmed, and not only with much difficulty avoided a disastrous overthrow, because a mere handful of gladiators in Campania, escaping from the games, had recruited a great army, appointed three generals, and most widely and cruelly devastated Italy. Let them say what God aided these men, so that from a small and contemptible band of robbers they attained to a kingdom feared even by the Romans, who had such great forces and fortresses. Or will they deny that they were divinely aided because they did not last long, as if indeed the life of any man whatever lasted long? 
In that case, too, the gods aid no one to reign, since all individuals quickly die. Nor is sovereign power to be reckoned a benefit, because in a little time in every man, and thus in all of them one by one, it vanishes like a vapour. For what does it matter to those who worship the gods under Romulus, and are long since dead, that after their death the Roman Empire has grown so great, while they plead their causes before the powers beneath? Whether those causes are good or bad, it matters not to the question before us. And this is to be understood of all those who carry with them the heavy burden of their actions, having in the few days of their life swiftly and hurriedly passed over the stage of the imperial office, although the office itself has lasted through long spaces of time, being filled by a constant succession of dying men. If, however, even those benefits which last only for the shortest time are to be ascribed to the aid of the gods, these gladiators were not a little aided, who broke the bonds of their servile condition, fled, escaped, raised a great and most powerful army, obedient to the will and orders of their chiefs, and much feared by the Roman majesty, and remaining unsubdued by several Roman generals, seized many places, and having won very many victories, enjoyed whatever pleasures they wished, and did what their lust suggested, and, until at last they were were conquered, which was done with the utmost difficulty, lived sublime and dominant. But let us come to greater matters. CHAPTER six. Justinus, who wrote Greek or rather foreign history in Latin, and briefly, like Trogus Pompeius, whom he followed, begins his work thus. In the beginning of the affairs of peoples and nations the government was in the hands of kings, who were raised to the height of this majesty not by courting the people, but by the knowledge good men had of their moderation. The people were held bound by no laws, the decisions of the princes were instead of laws. It was the custom to guard rather than to extend the boundaries of the empire, and kingdoms were kept within the bounds of each ruler's native land. Ninus, king of the Assyrians, first of all, through new lust of empire, changed the old and, as it were, ancestral custom of nations. He first made war on his neighbors, and wholly subdued as far as to the frontiers of Libya the nations as yet untrained to resist. And a little after, he says, Ninus established by constant possession the greatness of the authority he had gained. Having mastered his nearest neighbors, he went on to others, strengthened by the accession of forces, and by making each fresh victory the instrument of that which followed, subdued the nations of the whole East. Now with whatever fidelity to fact either he or Trogus may in general have written, for that they sometimes told lies is shown by other more trustworthy writers, yet it is agreed among other authors that the kingdom of the Assyrians was extended far and wide by King Ninus. And indeed it lasted so long that the Roman Empire has not yet attained the same age. For as those who write have treated of chronological history, this kingdom endured for twelve hundred and forty years from the first year in which Ninus began to reign, until it was transferred to the Medes. But to make war on your neighbors, and thence to proceed to others, and through mere lust of dominion to crush and subdue people who do you no harm, what else is this to be called than great robbery? CHAPTER Seven. If this kingdom was so great and lasting without the aid of the gods, why is the ample territory and long duration of the Roman Empire to be ascribed to the Roman gods? For whatever is the cause in it, the same is in the other also. But if they contend that the prosperity of the other also is to be attributed to the aid of the gods, I ask of which. For the other nations whom Ninus overcame did not then worship other gods. Or, if the Assyrians had gods of their own, who, so to speak, were more skilful workmen in the construction and preservation of the empire, 
whether are they dead, since they themselves have also lost the empire, or, having been defrauded of their pay, or promised a greater, have they chosen rather to go over to the Medes, and from them again to the Persians, because Cyrus invited them, and promised them something still more advantageous? This nation, indeed, since the time of the kingdom of Alexander the Macedonian, which was as brief in duration as it was great in extent, has preserved its own empire, and at this day occupies no small territories in the east. If this is so, then either the gods are unfaithful, who desert their own and go over to their enemies, which Camillus, who was but a man, did not do, when, being victor and subduer of a most hostile state, although he had felt that Rome, for whom he had done so much, was ungrateful, yet afterwards, forgetting the injury and remembering his native land, he freed her again from the Gauls. Or they are not so strong as gods ought to be, since they can be overcome by human skill or strength. Or if, when they carry on war among themselves, the gods are not overcome by men, but some gods who are peculiar to certain cities are perchance overcome by other gods, it follows that they have quarrels among themselves which they uphold, each for his own part. Therefore a city ought not to worship its own gods, but rather others who aid their own worshippers. Finally, whatever may have been the case as to this change of sides, or flight, or migration, or failure in battle on the part of the gods, the name of Christ had not yet been proclaimed in those parts of the earth when these kingdoms were lost and transferred through great destructions and war. For if, after more than twelve hundred years, when the kingdom was taken away from the Assyrians, the Christian religion had there already preached another eternal kingdom, and put a stop to the sacrilegious worship of false gods, what else would the foolish men of that nation have said but that the kingdom which had been so long preserved could be lost for no other cause than the desertion of their own religions and the reception of Christianity? In which foolish speech that might have been uttered, let those we speak of observe their own likeness and blush, if there is any sense of shame in them, because they have uttered similar complaints. Although the Roman Empire is afflicted rather than changed, a thing which has befallen it in other times also, before the name of Christ was heard, and it has been restored after such affliction, a thing which even in these times is not to be despaired of. For who knows the will of God concerning this matter? CHAPTER Eight. Next let us ask, if they please, out of so great a crowd of gods which the Romans worship, whom in especial, or what gods they believe to have extended and preserved that empire. Now surely of this work, which is so excellent and so very full of the highest dignity, they dare not ascribe any part to the goddess Cloacina, or to Volupia, who has her appellation from voluptuousness, or to Libentina, who has her name from lust, or to Vaticanus, who presides over the screaming of infants, or to Conino, who rules over their cradles. But how is it possible to recount in one part of this book all the names of gods or goddesses, which they could scarcely comprise in great volumes, distributing among those divinities their peculiar offices about single things? They have not even thought that the charge of their lands should be committed to any one god, but they have entrusted their farms to Rusina, the ridges of the mountains to Eugatinus, over the downs they have set the goddess Colatina, over the valleys Valonia. Nor could they even find one Segetia so competent that they could commend her care all their corn-crops at once, but so long as their seed-corn was still under the ground, they would have the goddess Sea set over it, then, whenever it was above ground and formed straw, they set over it the goddess Segetia, and when the grain was collected and stored, they set over it the goddess Tutelina, that it might be kept safe. Who would not have thought that goddess Segetia sufficient to take care of the standing corn until it had passed from the first green blades to the dry ears? 
Yet she was not enough for men who loved a multitude of gods that the miserable soul, despising the chaste embrace of the one true God, should be prostituted to a crowd of demons. Therefore they set proserpina over the germinating seeds, over the joints and knots of the stems, the god Nidotus, over the sheaths enfolding the ears, the goddess Volantina. When the sheaths opened that the spike might shoot forth, it was ascribed to the goddess Patalana. When the stems stood all equal with new ears, because the ancients described as equalizing by the term hostire, it was ascribed to the goddess Hostilina. When the grain was in flower, it was dedicated to the goddess Flora, when full of milk, to the god Lacturnus, when maturing, to the goddess Matuta, when the crop was runcated, that is, removed from the soil, to the goddess Runcina. Nor do I yet recount them all, for I am sick of all this, though it gives them no shame. Only I have said these very few things, in order that it may be understood they dare by no means say that the Roman Empire has been established, increased, and preserved by their deities, who had all their own functions assigned to them in such a way that no general oversight was entrusted to any one of them. When, therefore, could Sagisha take care of the empire, who was not allowed to take care of the corn and the trees? When could Canina take thought about war, whose oversight was not allowed to go beyond the cradles of the babies? When could Nidotus give help in battle, who had nothing to do even with the sheath of the ear, but only with the knots of the joints? Every one sets a porter at the door of his house, and because he is a man, he is quite sufficient. But these people have set three gods, Forculus to the doors, Cardea to the hinge, Lamentius to the threshold. Thus Forculus could not at the same time take care also of the hinge and the threshold. CHAPTER Nine. Therefore omitting, or passing by for a little, that crowd of petty gods, we ought to inquire into the part performed by the great gods, whereby Rome has been made so great as to reign so long over so many nations. Doubtless, therefore, this is the work of Jove, for they will have it that he is the king of all the gods and goddesses, as is shown by his scepter and by the capital on the lofty hill. Concerning that god they publish a saying which, although that of a poet, is most apt, all things are full of Jove. Varro believes that this god is worshipped, although called by another name, even by those who worship one god alone without any image. But if this is so, why has he been so badly used at Rome, and indeed by other nations too, that an image of him should be made, a thing which was so displeasing to Varro himself, that although he was overborne by the perverse custom of so great a city, he had not the least hesitation in both saying and writing that those who have appointed images for the people have both taken away fear and added error. CHAPTER Ten. Why also is Juno united to him as his wife, who is called at once sister and yoke-fellow? Because, say they, we have Jove in the ether, Juno in the air, and these two elements are united, the one being superior, the other inferior. It is not he, then, of whom it is said, all things are full of Jove, if Juno also fills some part. Does each fill either, and are both of this couple, and both of these elements, and in each of them at the same time? Why, then, is the ether given to Jove, the air to Juno? Besides, these two should have been enough. Why is it that the sea is assigned to Neptune, the earth to Pluto? And that these also might not be left without mates, Salatia is joined to Neptune, Proserpine to Pluto. For they say that as Juno possesses the lower part of the heavens, that is, the air, so Salatia possesses the lower part of the sea, and Proserpine the lower part of the earth. They seek how they may patch up these fables, but they find no way. For if these things were so, their ancient sages would have maintained that there are three chief elements of the world, not four, in order that each of the elements might have a pair of gods. 
now they have positively affirmed that the ether is one thing, the air another. But water, whether higher or lower, is surely water. Suppose it ever so unlike, can it ever be so much so as no longer to be water? And the lower earth, by whatever divinity it may be distinguished, what else can it be than earth? Lo, then, since the whole physical world is complete in these four or three elements, where shall Minerva be? What should she possess? What should she fill? For she is placed in the capital along with these two, although she is not the offspring of their marriage. Or if they say that she possesses the higher part of the ether, and on that account the poets have feigned that she sprang from the head of Jove, why then is she not rather reckoned the queen of the gods because she is superior to Jove? Is it because it would be improper to set the daughter before the father? Why then is not that rule of justice observed concerning Jove himself towards Saturn? Is it because he was conquered? Have they fought then? By no means, say they, that is an old wife's fable. Lo, we are not to believe fables, and must hold more worthy opinions concerning the gods. Why then do they not assign to the father of Jove a seat, if not of higher, at least of equal honour? Because Saturn, they say, is length of time. Therefore they who worship Saturn worship time, and it is insinuated that Jupiter, the king of the gods, was born of time. For is anything unworthy said when Jupiter and Juno are said to have been sprung from time, if he is the heaven, and she is the earth, since both heaven and earth have been made, and are therefore not eternal? For their learned and wise men have this also in their books. Nor is that saying taken by Virgil out of poetic figments, but out of the books of philosophers. Then Ether, the father almighty, in copious showers, descended into his spouse's glad bosom, making it fertile, that is, into the bosom of Tellus, or the earth. Although here also they will have it that there are some differences, and think that in the earth herself Terra is one thing, Tellus another, and Tulumo another. And they have all these as gods, called by their own names, distinguished by their own offices, and venerated with their own altars and rites. This same earth also they call the mother of the gods, so that even the fictions of the poets are more tolerable, if, according not to their poetical but sacred books, Juno is not only the sister and wife, but also the mother of Jove. The same earth they worship as Ceres, and also as Vesta, while they yet more frequently affirm that Vesta is nothing else than fire, pertaining to the hearts, without which the city cannot exist, and therefore virgins are wont to serve her, because as nothing is born of a virgin, so nothing is born of fire. But all this nonsense ought to be completely abolished and extinguished by him who is born of a virgin. For who can bear that, while they ascribe to the fire so much honour, and, as it were, chastity, they do not blush sometimes even to call Vesta Venus, so that honoured virginity may vanish in her handmaidens? For if Vesta is Venus, how can virgins rightly serve her by abstaining from venery? Are there two Venuses, the one a virgin, the other not a maid? Or, rather, are there three, one the goddess of virgins, who is also called Vesta, another the goddess of wives, and another of harlots? To her also the Phoenicians offered a gift by prostituting their daughters before they united them to husbands. Which of these is the wife of Vulcan? Certainly not the virgin, since she has a husband. Far be it from us to say it is the harlot, lest we should seem to wrong the son of Juno and fellow-worker of Minerva. Therefore it is to be understood that she belongs to the married people, but we would not wish them to imitate her in what she did with Mars. Again, they say, you return to fables. What sort of justice is that, to be angry with us because we say such things of their gods, and not to be angry with themselves, who in their theatres most willingly behold the crimes of their gods? 
and, a thing incredible if it were not thoroughly well proved, these very theatric representations of the crimes of their gods have been instituted in honour of these same gods. CHAPTER Eleven. Let them therefore assert as many things as ever they please in physical reasonings and disputations. One while let Jupiter be the soul of this corporeal world, who fills and moves that whole mass, constructed and compacted out of four, or as many elements as they please. Another while let him yield to his sister and brothers their parts of it. Now let him be the ether, that from above he may embrace Juno, the air spread out beneath. Again, let him be the whole heaven, along with the air, and impregnate with fertilizing showers and seeds the earth, as his wife, and, at the same time, his mother, for this is not vile in divine beings. And yet again, that it may not be necessary to run through them all, let him, the one God, of whom many think it has been said, by a most noble poet, For God pervadeth all things, all lands, and the tracts of the sea, and the depth of the heavens. Let it be he who in the ether is Jupiter, in the air Juno, in the sea Neptune, in the lower parts of the sea Salatia, in the earth Pluto, in the lower part of the earth Proserpine, on the domestic hearths Vesta, in the furnace of the workmen Vulcan, among the stars Sol and Luna and the stars, in divination Apollo, in merchandise Mercury, in Janus the initiator, in Terminus the terminator, Saturn in time, Mars and Bologna in war, Liber in vineyards, Ceres in cornfields, Diana in forests, Minerva in learning. Finally, let it be he who is in that crowd, as it were, of plebeian gods. Let him preside under the name of Liber over the seed of men, and under that of Libera over that of women. Let him be Despiter, who brings forth the birth to the light of day. Let him be the goddess Mena, whom they set over the menstruation of women. Let him be Lucina, who is invoked by women in childbirth. Let him bring help to those who are being born by taking them up from the bosom of the earth, and let him be called Opus. Let him open the mouth in the crying babe, and be called the god Vaticanus. Let him lift it from the earth, and be called the goddess Levana. Let him watch over cradles, and be called the goddess Cunina. Let it be no other than he who is in those goddesses, who sing the fates of the newborn, and are called Carmentes. Let him preside over fortuitous events, and be called Fortuna. In the goddess Rumina let him milk out the breast to the little one, because the ancients termed the breast Ruma. In the goddess Potina let him administer drink. In the goddess Educa let him supply food. From the terror of infants let him be styled Paventia. From the hope which comes, Vanilia. From voluptuousness, Volupia. From action, Agenor. From the stimulants by which man is spurred on to much action, let him be named the goddess Stimula. Let him be the goddess Strenia, for making strenuous. Numeria, who teaches to number, Camena, who teaches to sing. Let him be both the god Consus for granting counsel, and the goddess Sentia for inspiring sentences. Let him be the goddess Juventas, who, after the robe of boyhood is laid aside, takes charge of the beginning of the youthful age. Let him be Fortuna Barbata, who endues adults with a beard, whom they have not chosen to honour. So that this divinity, whatever it may be, should at least be a male god, named either Barbatus, from Barba, like Nodotus, from Nodus, or certainly not Fortuna, but because he has beards, Fortunius. Let him and the god Hugatinus yoke couples in marriage, and when the girdle of the virgin wife is loosed, let him be invoked as the goddess Virginiensis. Let him be Mutunus or Tuternus, who among the Greeks is called Priapus. 
If they are not ashamed of it, let all these which I have named, and whatever others I have not named, for I have not thought fit to name all, let all these gods and goddesses be that one Jupiter, whether, as some will have it, all these are parts of him, or are his powers, as those think, who are pleased to consider him the soul of the world, which is the opinion of most of their doctors, and these the greatest. If these things are so, how evil they may be, I do not yet meanwhile inquire, what would they lose, if they, by a more prudent abridgment, should worship one god? For what part of him could be condemned, if he himself should be worshipped? But if they are afraid lest parts of him should be angry at being passed by or neglected, then it is not the case, as they will have it, that this whole is as the life of one living being, which contains all the gods together, as if they were its virtues, or members, or parts. But each part has its own life separate from the rest, if it is so that one can be angered, appeased, or stirred up more than another. But if it is said that altogether, that is, the whole Jove himself, would be offended if his parts were not also worshipped singly and minutely, it is foolishly spoken. Surely none of them could be passed by if he who singly possesses them all should be worshipped. For to omit other things which are innumerable, when they say that all the stars are parts of Jove, and are all alive, and have rational souls, and therefore without controversy are gods, can they not see how many they do not worship, to how many they do not build temples, or set up altars, and to how very few, in fact, of the stars they have thought of setting them up and offering sacrifice? If, therefore, those are displeased who are not severally worshipped, do they not fear to live with only a few appeased, while all heaven is displeased? But if they worship all the stars, because they are part of Jove whom they worship, by the same compendious method they could supplicate them all in him alone. For in this way no one would be displeased, since in him alone all would be supplicated. No one would be contemned, instead of there being just cause of displeasure given to the much greater number who were passed by in the worship offered to some, especially when Priapus, stretched out in vile nakedness, is preferred to those who shine from their supernal abode. CHAPTER Twelve. Ought not men of intelligence, and indeed men of every kind, to be stirred up to examine the nature of this opinion? For there is no need of excellent capacity for this task, that putting away the desire of contention, they may observe that if God is the soul of the world, and the world is as a body to him, who is the soul, he must be one living being consisting of soul and body, and that this same God is a kind of womb of nature containing all things in himself, so that the lives and souls of all living things are taken, according to the manner of each one's birth, out of his soul which vivifies that whole mass, and therefore nothing at all remains which is not a part of God. And if this is so, who cannot see what impious and irreligious consequences follow, such as that whatever one may trample, he must trample a part of God, and in slaying any living creature a part of God must be slaughtered? But I am unwilling to utter all that may occur to those who think of it, yet cannot be spoken without irreverence. CHAPTER Thirteen. But if they contend that only rational animals, such as men, are parts of God, I do not really see how, if the whole world is God, they can separate beasts from being parts of him. But what need is there of striving about that? Concerning the rational animal himself, that is, man, what more unhappy belief can be entertained than that a part of God is whipped when a new boy is whipped? And who, unless he is quite mad, could bear the thought that parts of God can become lascivious, iniquitous, impious, and altogether damnable? In brief, why is God angry at those who do not worship him, since these offenders are parts of himself? It remains, therefore, that they must say that all the gods have their own lives, that each one lives for himself, and none of them is a part of any one, but that all are to be worshipped, at least as many as can be known and worshipped, for there are so many it is impossible that all can be so.
and of all these I believe that Jupiter, because he presides as king, is thought by them to have both established and extended the Roman Empire. For if he has not done it, what other god do they believe could have attempted so great a work, when they must all be occupied with their own offices and works, nor can one intrude on that of another? Could the kingdom of men then be propagated and increased by the king of the gods? Chapter 14 here, first of all, I ask why even the kingdom itself is not some god. For why should it not also be so, if victory is a goddess? Or what need is there of Jove himself in this affair, if victory favours and is propitious, and always goes to those whom she wishes to be victorious? With this goddess favourable and propitious, even if Jove was idle and did nothing, what nations could remain unsubdued, what kingdom would not yield? But perhaps it is displeasing to good men to fight with most wicked unrighteousness, and provoke with voluntary war neighbours who are peaceable and do no wrong, in order to enlarge a kingdom. If they feel thus, I entirely approve and praise them. CHAPTER fifteen. Let them ask, then, whether it is quite fitting for good men to rejoice in extended empire. For the iniquity of those with whom just wars are carried on favours the growth of a kingdom, which would certainly have been small if the peace and justice of neighbours had not by any wrong provoked the carrying on of war against them, and human affairs being thus more happy, all kingdoms would have been small, rejoicing in neighbourly concord, and thus there would have been very many kingdoms of nations in the world, as there are very many houses of citizens in a city. Therefore, to carry on war and extend a kingdom over wholly subdued nations seems to bad men to be felicity, to good men necessity. But because it would be worse that the injurious should rule over those who are more righteous, therefore even that is not unsuitably called felicity. But beyond doubt it is greater felicity to have a good neighbour at peace than to conquer a bad one by making war. Your wishes are bad when you desire that one whom you hate or fear should be in such a condition that you can conquer him. If, therefore, by carrying on wars that were just, not impious or unrighteous, the Romans could have acquired so great an empire, ought they not to worship as a goddess even the injustice of foreigners? For we see that this has cooperated much in extending the empire, by making foreigners so unjust that they became people with whom just wars might be carried on, and the empire increased. And why may not injustice, at least that of foreign nations, also be a goddess, if fear and dread and ague have deserved to be Roman gods? By these two, therefore, that is, by foreign injustice, and the goddess Victoria, for injustice stirs up causes of wars, and Victoria brings these same wars to a happy termination, the empire has increased, even although Jove has been idle. For what part could Jove have here, when those things which might be thought to be his benefits are held to be gods, called gods, worshipped as gods, and are themselves invoked for their own parts? He also might have some part here, if he himself might be called empire, just as she is called victory. Or if empire is the gift of Jove, why may not victory also be held to be his gift? And it certainly would have been held to be so, had he been recognized and worshipped, not as a stone in the capital, but as the true king of kings and lord of lords. CHAPTER Sixteen. But I wonder very much that while they assign to separate gods single things, and well-nigh all movements of the mind, that while they invoke the goddess Agonoria, who should excite to action, the goddess Stimula, who should stimulate to unusual action, the goddess Mercia, 
who should not move men beyond measure, but make them, as Pomponius says, mercid, that is, too slothful and inactive, the goddess Strenua, who should make them strenuous, and that while they offered to all these gods and goddesses solemn and public worship, they should yet have been unwilling to give public acknowledgment to her whom they named Quius, because she makes men quiet, but built her temple outside the Colleen Gate. Whether was this a symptom of an unquiet mind, or rather was it thus intimated, that he who should persevere in worshipping that crowd, not to be sure of gods, but of demons, could not dwell with quiet, to which the true physician calls, saying, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. CHAPTER seventeen. Or do they say, perhaps, that Jupiter sends the goddess Victoria, and that she, as it were, acting in obedience to the king of the gods, comes to those to whom he may have dispatched her, and takes up her quarters on their side? This is truly said not of Jove, whom they, according to their own imagination, feigned to be the king of the gods, but of him who is the true eternal king, because he sends not victory, who is no person, but his angel, and causes whom he pleases to conquer, whose counsel may be hidden, but cannot be unjust. For if victory is a goddess, why is not triumph also a god, and joined to victory either as husband, or brother, or son? Indeed, they have imagined such things concerning the gods, that if the poets had feigned the like, and they should have been discussed by us, they would have replied that they were laughable figments of the poets, not to be attributed to true deities. And yet they themselves did not laugh when they were, not reading in the poets, but worshipping in the temples, such doting follies. Therefore they should entreat Jove alone for all things, and supplicate him only. For if victory is a goddess, and is under him as her king, wherever he might have sent her, she could not dare to resist and do her own will rather than his. CHAPTER Eighteen. What shall we say besides of the idea that Felicity also is a goddess? She has received a temple, she has merited an altar, suitable rites of worship are paid to her. She alone then should be worshipped. For where she is present, what good thing can be absent? But what does a man wish, that he thinks fortune also a goddess, and worships her? Is felicity one thing, fortune another? Fortune indeed may be bad as well as good, but felicity, if it could be bad, would not be felicity. Certainly we ought to think all the gods of either sex, if they also have sex, are only good. This says Plato, this say other philosophers, this say all estimable rulers of the republic and the nations. How is it, then, that the goddess Fortune is sometimes good, sometimes bad? Is it perhaps the case that when she is bad she is not a goddess, but is suddenly changed into a malignant demon? How many fortunes are there, then? Just as many as there are men who are fortunate, that is, of good fortune. But since there must also be very many others who at the very same time are men of bad fortune, could she, being one and the same fortune, be at the same time both good and bad, the one to these, the other to those? She who is the goddess, is she always good? Then she herself is felicity. Why then are two names given her? Yet this is tolerable, for it is customary that one thing should be called by two names. But why different temples, different altars, different rituals? There is a reason, say they, because felicity is she whom the good have by previous merit. But fortune, which is termed good without any trial of merit, befalls both good and bad men fortuitously, whence also she is named fortune. How, therefore, is she good, who without any discernment comes both to the good and to the bad? Why is she worshipped, who is thus blind, running at random on any one whatever, so that for the most part she passes by her worshippers and cleaves to those who despise her? Or if her worshippers profit somewhat, so that they are seen by her and loved, 
Then she follows merit, and does not come fortuitously. What then becomes of that definition of fortune? What becomes of the opinion that she has received her very name from fortuitous events? For it profits one nothing to worship her if she is truly fortune. But if she distinguishes her worshippers so that she may benefit them, she is not fortune. Or does Jupiter send her too whether he pleases? Then let him alone be worshipped, because fortune is not able to resist him when he commands her, and sends her where he pleases. Or at least, let the bad worship her, who do not choose to have merit by which the goddess Felicity might be invited. End of Book 4, Chapters 1-18 through 18. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org